0: I'm Al Philreiss, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pensound Archive, writing.upenn.com. Dot edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler Studio by Alexandria Johnson, a multidisciplinary artist and performer, originally from Dallas, Texas. Whose work in dance and movement has led to projects with choreographers such as Hope Boykin, Ronald K. Brown, Daryl Grand Moultrie. Who's currently working with the Francesca Harper Project, who has shared her love of dance throughout the US and in Canada, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Uganda, and England, and whose poems and essays she sees as expanded media of movement. And by Tracy Morris, a poet who has worked extensively as a page based writer, sound poet, critic, scholar, band leader, actor, and multimedia performer, whose sound installations have been presented at the Whitney Biennial, MoMA, and pretty much everywhere whose most recent book is Handholding Five Kinds. And you do you prefer Five Kinds? You gave it to me as Five Kinds, but it's Handholding in Five Kinds, is that
1: right? That's good.
0: That's good. And uh, who recently co-edited Best American Experimental Writing with Charles Bernstein, who directs the MFA program in Performance and Performance Studies at Pratt? whose pen Sound page gives us a sense of the great range of her work, including Katrina Blues, Mahalia Theremin, one of my favorites, My Great Grand Aunt Speaks to a Bush Supporter, and African, a mesmerizingly radical reiteration of Afro-Shakespearean voicing that, I'm glad to say, is the final poem that 180,000 people so far have studied and discussed in the open online course called Modpo. And by Amber Rose Johnson... Who earned the title of the Poetry Out Loud National Resistance or Recitation <laughs> Champion? I think they're probably the same. And has since been <laughs> featured on the Words for You poetry album alongside Meryl Streep and James Earl Jones. Equal billing, I hope. On NPR's Writer's Almanac with Garrison Keillor. On MSNBC's The Melissa Harris Perry Show. Big fan of that show. Did she step down from that? She, she was a whole resigned in thing. the middle of the yeah, campaign, she didn't, resigned, didn't she? They were. Yeah. And also, not Melissa, but Amber Rose, on stages across the U.S. and whose current research explores Caribbean poetic theory and anti-colonial literatures of the Black Atlantic. Thank you, Alexandria, for coming all the way from New York.
2: Thank you for having me. This is your
0: first time at the Writer's House? This
2: is my first time at the Writer's House, and it's been wonderful so far. (laughs) That's
0: great. I'm really happy to have you. Tracy Morris, it's always a total pleasure to have you here in the friendly confines.
1: This is not my first time at the Kelly Riders no, House. No, not <laughs> by a long shot. This is not shot. my seventh time at the oh, Kelly yeah. Riders House. I love it's this great. place.
0: So glad that you're here. And Amber Rose, you, all you had to do was sort of stroll down Locust Walk to be with us, but still it feels really great to have you back here.
3: No, it's wonderful. I'm I'm excited about my growing relationship with the Kelly Riders cool. House.
0: I'm excited in return. Well, the four of us are here today to talk about six short poem sections from the long poem titled Zong, Z-O-N-G! by Norbesi Philip, published as a book by Wesleyan in 2008. The sections we will discuss are numbers 2, 3, 6, 11, 21, and 26, and these sections can be found respectively on pages 5, 6, 14, 20, 37, and 45 of the Wesleyan edition. Philip's pen sound page includes several really compelling performances from Zong. The recordings of all six of our sections will come from a Segway series reading at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York, given on February 17th, 2007, a year or so prior to the publication of the book. So here now is Norbessie Philip performing six poems from Zong.
4: Zong two. The throw in circumstance, the weight in want, in sustenance, for underwriters the loss, the order in destroy, the that fact, the it was, the were Negroes, the after rains. Zong 3. The sum of Negroes overboard. The rest in lives drowned, exist did not. In themselves, preservation obliged frenzy, thirst for 40 others, etc. Zong 6. Question therefore the age. 18 weeks and calm. But it is said, from the maps and contradicted by the evidence, question, therefore, the age. Zong number 11. Suppose the law is, not, does, not, would, not, be, not, Suppose the law not a crime. Suppose the law a loss. Suppose the law, suppose. Zone 21. Is, being, is, or should? Is, 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 be, being, or been? Is, was, is, Should be or have been? Is there was, should, was not, should be or have been? Is there is or being? There is, was, is, is, should and have been. There is, was there. Zong 26. Was the cause, was the remedy, was the record, was the argument, was the delay, was the evidence, was overboard, was the not, was the cause, was the was, was the need, was the case, was the perils, was the want, was the particular circumstance, was the seas, was the cos, was the could, was the would was the policy, was the loss, was the vessel, was the reins, was the order, was the that, was the this, was the necessity, was the mistake, was the captain, was the crew, was the result, was justified, was the voyage, was the water, was the maps, was the weeks, was the winds, was the calms, was the captain, was the seas, was the reins, was uncommon, was the declaration, was the apprehension, was the voyage, was destroyed, was thrown, was the question, was the therefore, was the this, was the that, was the Negroes, was the cause. Thank you. Let's
0: just talk about what we heard. Alexandria, I couldn't help but watch you dance and sway, especially listening to number 26. Can we talk about the music of it? And and, and then I guess the challenge is to get to the extremity that's being... Um, Mind here and reported out of documentation, the ethical extremity of the poem in its presentation creates a really important reader experience. And I don't want to say although, and we have this incredibly musical, beautiful experience. It's so hard at first to reconcile those two. So we can talk about the music and what was. You had it it was in your head. It was I think. moving me. Yeah.
2: Um, I think very much there is a churning or like a circling or cycling that happens in the repetition of was the and what it produces in my body is almost this regurgitation. So if we think about generational trauma or like a blood memory, that is the question that comes up, how do we carry this or how do we reconcile this and continue to move forward? So what's moving in my body is this remembering with each cycle of her words and repeating was the and then each word after or words after bring up a new memory. So I feel like my body wants to find ways to understand what it is she's saying in more than just words or in more than just timing and tempo, but also feeling and...
0: Wow. Wow. Perfect way to start, Tracy, to you on generational memory, Alexandria's phrase. I mean, I think of so much of your work as engaged with using body voice and then what gets produced by voice and the words that you could put on the page as a result of that as generational passing down documentation, witnessing testimony, et cetera. So can you say more? Is generational memory a helpful phrase for you, and what do you do with it?
1: Well, I wonder how the recognition of the story that she's telling, how she's articulating something that hasn't been well-known in public discourse before, how that's revealed. And I think what Alexandra is talking about in terms of it being revealed through the body, how one engages with the body before one knows what is actually happening Mm. is one way of discovery. But there's another way in which we discover the poem even if we do know what it's about before we hear it. And Mm. that's another way of knowing. And so I'm just interested in that contrast. And I guess one of the things that's most jarring and exciting to me about this work and the way that we're talking about it is the way that she engages with the limitations of language.
0: So Amber Rose, you've, you know, really thought about this this work. Can we give some background? What What is the material from which she's drawing this language?
3: So she's working from uh, all the language all the words of the poems are coming from this two-page document, the Gregson v. Gilbert case, or more commonly known as the Zong case, which is included at the very end of the work. Um, So in 1783, there was a ship, um, a slave ship that was traveling to Jamaica, and the trip which would normally take maybe four weeks six weeks something like this ended up taking nearly 18 weeks because of lots of things because of mistakes um, because of navigational mistakes primarily though there were other islands that they could have landed on but they were trying to get to Jamaica it was taking a very long time and so um, as water was being spent as water was spoiling um, the captain of the ship made the decision to throw nearly 150 slaves overboard so that he would not have to be responsible for the cost of the slaves on the ship, but was trying to remove that cost from himself and put it on the underwriters so he would be able to claim insurance money on lost cargo. Um, and so what Bessie is trying to do, I think, is to uncover the stories of these African slaves and what actually happened on this ship by what she calls locking herself within the text um, and creates this long book of poetry just using what's in this insurance document.
0: Thank you. And it's a real extraction. So if we look together at Zong 21, starting on page 37, we get a viscerum. We get just a, just a sliver of an extraction. And Alexandria, the... Language of 21 is full of the verb to be. I mean, there's really... How do, how would you respond to a skeptic who says, I get the concept here, but why is there so little left of the documentation? Why does she make such a radical choice?
2: I think it reflects what it is that we have to go off of now. So there is not much left. So there is this feeling in that has to happen. And I think even the writing on the page points to this in how it is laid out. Um, There are these large spaces in between, and when I listen to this, I'm almost, I have this urge to pace or to walk or to figure out how to fill the space between the words, the space between not knowing or the what would be the skeptical nature of these words. So I think it is a reflection of... Where we are. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's great. So it, it's not a conceptual project in the sense of just retyping the document and presenting a document, a documentary poetry, but it is almost as if to say, I can't or we can't reproduce the testimony, we can't reproduce the experience.
1: The question of existence, existentialism, is the fundamental root of the text. What is, is? What is a, What is a something versus a someone? This is the fundamental question of the entire book, and this is, might be one of the reasons why in Lucky 21, the question is, what are we talking about when we're talking about materiality, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a, when one extends to the idea that one is going to take a kidnapped human being and through this transition make them an object, That is what is happening. First you have Africans, then the Africans are kidnapped, and then the Africans are kidnapped to be socialized, to become non-human entities. So the thing is, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? The implication is you are no longer a person. You're an object. And the is is the fundamental question. Mm -hmm. What is this material?
3: Yeah, I think... I think what she's doing is by pulling, by stripping back some of the words, she's exposing the nature of the English language. She talks about critiquing the European project. So what some might call, oh, maybe this is a deconstruction, deconstructionist text, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Yes, but she's doing that to ex- expose the ways that language works to dehumanize the black body, to make the black body into a thing. She talks about the Law approaching the realm of magic in its ability to to um to hide those things
0: so I have a question I have for all three of you at this point is this is what might be called, and it's really a dull phrase when you think about the power of this work, but it's an experiment in language strategy, right? Mm-hmm. taking a taking a document and deploying it like this. Um, when it's when such an experimental language strategy, which in 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 our world of contemporary poetry and poetics is often thought of as a kind of depersonalizing and a cold strategy, and a lot of avant-gardists are thought of as, you know, less humane than they could be, et cetera, this is obviously the, has the opposite effect. Mm-hmm. So my question for the three of you uh, is, how does she, how does Nor-Bessie Philip pull off um, using an experimental strategy that often leaves people cold to extremely charge a highly charged ethical situation to create a more rather than less socially engaged work of art.
1: Well, one of the things that we have to wrestle with is what happens when things are disappeared and when people are disappeared, like how do you gather them with with the, you know, she's reconfiguring the idea of detritus and saying she's pulling it together. And it made me think about, uh, other I- environments where the the banality of sort of detail like sort of illuminates a story or or becomes politically charged. And I thought, uh, ironically, about like Al Capone and taxes, right? Like they couldn't get Al Capone on murder. So they got him on tax, debate, but that was like enough. What kind of ledger do we have? When do people take the time to not disappear a fact? It's when they have like this sort of banal investment. And so it's like sort of... This is a reconfiguration. I want to get insurance money. And so we find out about all these Africans that were murdered because somebody wants to get the insurance money.
0: That's the reason it went to court.
1: Right. Nobody would. Otherwise, that story would be disappeared just like the people. So it's just very interesting how she's taking almost the receipts, as she says, you know, she's pulling the receipts, as we say, you know, contemporarily and creating like sort of adding a three dimensional notion to it, you know. Mm.
0: What's the difference between a work of recovery, which is often important in uh, genocidal situations and mass murder, just recovering the documents and presenting and representing the documents? She doesn't do that here. She represents a version of the documents.
3: I think part of what's really important about what she does is that Norbesi does not give us a story of these folks. She does not imagine for us Individual a mother people, and daughter. Right. She does not give us the comfort of imagining friends or folks who knew each other before or a father. She doesn't give us that. But what she does do is by peeling back the language, she draws our attention to the void. She tells us that it's the story that can that can only be told through its untelling. And so she strips back the language almost to point us to the void where we might see these folks, where we might feel something. And we do the work. Something, and then we do the work. And the work constantly changes. Every time you read this poem, you can feel or hear something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think... That's what's really powerful. Not that Norbesi puts in her idea of what has happened, but she tries to peel it back so that we might bear witness to what is missing and mark that space.
4: Suppose the law is not, does not, would not, be not. Suppose the law not a crime. Suppose the law a loss. Suppose the law. Suppose.
0: Can we look together at Zong 11, which refers to the law? This is a miracle, this one, because she takes from the language of the trial transcript or the reporting of the trial, and she comes up with some very big ideas. On the left side, she gives us a bunch of knots, N-O-T. And there's this phrase, suppose the law. Let's, let's all add some observations.
3: Suppose the law is, is noting how the law can mediate between what is and is not. To go back, Tracy, to your point on being and the word is, the law can shift between what is and what is not by its, by its literal presence mm. or wordly presence.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a subjectivity to how language is used and when it fails us when it fails our humanity and when it ass- affirms our humanity so in the middle is supposed the law that the law is almost like a the law is the fulcrum of the seesaw and mm-hmm. this is a this is a a classic strategy for rhetoric, for poetry, is to create these two binaries. You have on the one hand, on the other. And it's not even, even at the bottom. You know, at the bottom we wonder, so it's, if it's a seesaw, if we use that as in our imagination, and the bottom is the thing that's holding the seesaw to the ground. And those words are, um, suppose the law is law, suppose the law, suppose. So it's not... It's not a steady foundation.
0: No, gra- there's not a lot of ground there. When suppose is the ground, is the ultimate ground? Right. Yeah.
3: That's that last suppose, though, makes me think of who is doing that supposing. Who exactly? Who has the right to suppose the law? One way or the other, there's this haunting that happens all through the text and it's not just the haunting of the folks that were thrown overboard. it's also the haunting of Captain Collinwood. it's also the haunting of the judges. it's also the haunting of all of these voices. and so I wonder then when we are left with that suppose, who is the one supposing the law well there's a there's a there's
1: a there's, a, there's two ways of knowing suppose right she's in this she's talking about it both ways. the supposition. And how you are supposed, right? Like the right. position, senses, the yeah. supposition, and the position. Yeah, right? yeah.
2: Definitely. In listening to this the first time, I had the idea that the knots were in parentheses, so it's a parenthetical knot. And in oh, my... like
0: not, is not exactly mm-hmm. like exactly. a side whisper.
2: Exactly. So then, in thinking choreographically, it was almost I I, w- I w- could imagine this section being. A little humorous or ironic, and I'm thinking that using the satire or or irony is a way to approach the weight of this text um, in a way that can be understood by many people. Mm -hmm. So uh, almost using humor as the forced to break the barrier of understanding of this is what really happened. I'm going to have you laugh in this moment because of this gesture or because of this repetition or this parenthetical not. but I need you to understand that this is deeper than a ha ha ha.
0: Oh, that's really good. And mm-hmm. bitter irony leads to, in this particular section, leads to the really um, radical and upsetting conclusion that whereas we used to think of language as law and law as language. And then you have a document that focuses on what Tracy correctly described as kind of a side issue. So the language that emits from that legalistic experience is, to her mind, useless. So that we encounter the problems of testimony, the problems of testimony about life in extremity, about genocidal action that, that the language cannot possibly contain. Suppose the law, a loss... This is language loss. This is the problem of not being able to say what happened. And therefore, we have this alternative strategy.
3: For both language and law, the logic behind it is the grammar, right? Right, and that's And she, t- right. she talks about this. And there, I mean, all of grammar is kind of tossed on its head all throughout this work, but... There is a strategy in that, in the unsettling organization of the grammar or the disorder of the grammar, um, which I think is done to show exactly what you're saying, the loss in language. And to, to disrupt what is comfortable about language, what allows us to trust that language is actually communicating the thing that it is supposed to
1: communicate.
0: Mm. Mm. Wow. Wow.
1: I feel that much of what we're discussing now is about the performance of language. This is very Austenian discuss- discourse on speech act theory and what it is that language does when it does things, right? This is not descriptive language. Give us a
0: seminal text, Austin is it? Uh, how to do how things, to do with, things words, with words,
1: right? So this is what is the language doing? How is it performing? And it made me think about another you know, sort of important text in this regard, which is beloved, mm-hmm. and how, in the formulation of beloved, there was this crunchy abstraction of language because other types of beings are not concerned with grammatical they're not their construct is not based on grammar, it's based on some other thing it's It's just interesting to think about. How rich in some ways language is in its success or failure because it's material. It's material mm-hmm. that's being reconstructed in a in a bunch of ways. And throughout the book, one of the things that makes the book itself so important is that she keeps reinvestigating different ways in which language, varieties of language, fail and also succeed in ways that go beyond literal meaning. Mm.
3: I think... I really appreciated you saying language is a particular kind of material to Mm -hmm. be manipulated Mm -hmm. because I was thinking back to your earlier comment, Alexandria, about rhythm Mm -hmm. and what I think what happens in some of these is that rhythm and feeling and language are all put on equal planes as material to communicate the untelling of this story. Um, so she is working through rhythm. She is working vi- with our visual. She is working with the material page. And there is as much focus on those other elements as there is on language. I
2: totally agree.
3: I feel like these
2: materials are techniques or resources from which movement can be made. Or wow. <laughs> and That's um,
0: really great you're a performance studies person so you read this book probably you probably took off your performance studies hat a little bit but what what's it like no that
3: can't be that
0: what's it like to engage this work as someone who's in performance studies
2: i mean we've we've um opened it up a little bit um or, or a lot actually um in how the text performs and how the rhythm is informative of movement and performance, how even the tone of her voice. So even there's, for me, I noticed a a large tempo change from song two to three. So there is this incredible slowing down in, in song three which opened up the floor um, the space for there to be more exploration of that space. So I, I, I approach these all as tools. So the words on the page are tools, their structure on the page are tools. The sound of her or the sound and tone of her voice is a tool, the speed in which she speaks or the calm in which she speaks is these are all tools, and these tools can be used to, create a story they can be used to create the story that's not on the page they can be used to create the story that is on the page and i think it's up to the performer to decide what story then will be told using these tools
0: and tracy morris as performer so poet i mean really i know you this is sort of right up your alley but uh, you know you think of the poet as doing exactly what alexandra said and the poet Ought to be doing. I
1: mean, that's that's I, I appreciated Alexandria's point for that reason. It's not, it starts here, but it's not limited to this framework. It's not even limited to this genre of expression. It's, you know, really I think really good art does that. It it inspires, but not in like a sort of vague way, in a very concrete way. Okay, if if Alexandria is a movement person. How does she translate without the without the restrictions of language, which Norbessi Phillip has already like sort of removed? How how can I think about that and reconfigure that in my discipline and my different ways of understanding and embodiment?
2: Mm. In dance, we have this idea that you learn the technique only to abandon it. The abandonment gives you the freedom to tell the story through those techniques, and I think that. Zong is a wonderful place to, to, to learn techniques and to see the abandonment on on the page and, and hear it in in the space as well. And
0: there's the recovery of abandonment, which is very hard to recover in a context like this. And mm-hmm. your observation that we move from th- two to three, and she, in a sense, abandons the even quiet, relatively quiet tone of two and gets going in three. So let's look at two. One, you know, What are the reasons why... Bessie in the performance at Segway caught fire here or really moved. And I think one of them is the use of underwriters,
3: Hmm.
0: which is such a powerful word. We should probably talk about it. And then for me, the rhetoric of fact, the it was, you know, the it was, you know, I'm hearing – Camel Braithwaite or uh, or Nathaniel Mackey with you know deploying the word it to refer to itness to refer to denotation which clearly failed here legal denotation didn't help anybody mm-hmm. and came up with the wrong so does anybody want to talk about underwriters or the it was I mean underwriters is a giant zong like pun right
3: the under for me is haunting. And maybe this is also a good time because I, I keep looking at, on the page, this line. Yeah, what's happening there? Mm. So the line, beneath the line at the bottom of each page, in this first section mm-hmm. called As, which means bones, there are a series of names and... Nerezi talks about in the Notanda at the end of the book, she talks about trying to find the names of the people who were Mm -hmm. thrown overboard the ship, but those names were not recorded. And then she receives a document and it says meager girl, negro, sick, you know, so on and so forth. And so she works with an author to come up with these Yoruba names to put below the text as if to say these might be some of the names that we might imagine for the folks that are thrown overboard. It almost becomes
0: in memoriam.
3: It does, right, people. but it's so haunting. Yeah. The, 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 that line, is, that's a brutal line for me. Well,
0: you've just helped us with underwriters. I mean, one sense is exactly. insurance people, underwriters. Secondly, literally under the line, the underwriters are the people who are memorialized yes. <laughs> pseudonymously, I guess. Mm-hmm. And a third sense, of course, is this whole do- all idea of supposition as the ground. I mean, the thing that is underwriting social contract through language.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things I love about this collection and certainly the the poems that we've been looking at is the way that she makes us think rigorously about language and about the etymology of language. It's so hard to pull off what she's doing. You know, like there's there's a certain sort of heightened realization to craft that she has that I just have to sort of give a shout out for. Her. I mean, because she's doing this in so many ways to make us think about the 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 sort the root cause of the utterance of these words, mm-hmm. not just in this volume, but period. Like, where does this word come from? And also, what does it mean to do something as elegant as normalized African names in the context of an English language book? It's kind of hard, as you both said, as you all said, to talk about, like, a word. Because, she, because you realize you can't be passive in any, <laughs> with any word in this entire Isn't book. Isn't this what
0: poetry does when it's doing its best? All these things at once? I would say that's, yeah. that would be the truth. Yeah. The alpha Before we wrap up with final words, I'd love to look at Zong 26, which, again, because I'm across from Alexandria, I couldn't help noticing a swaying. This is the was the cause, was the remedy. This is prose, kind of the closest thing we get to prose. It's the closest thing we get to a block. It's very powerful.
2: What I was most taken by was the dramatic change in structure on the page. So to go from these intricate spatial arrangements of the other writings to this paragraph form, I felt that. Although we may be used to the paragraph forms and other writings, to have it here in this context, I felt that she was really saying something, and mm. having it be contrasted with the other works. So I was, yeah,
0: yeah cool. And in, in a way, um, after all this work, we're on page forty-five, and she gets to reclaim the paragraph because mm. she's just done so much. She's so much fed up with paragraphs so earlier, and then it comes back. Ambrose, thoughts on twenty-six?
3: Yeah, I think. What she's doing there maybe is drawing attention to the grammar that we want to associate with the paragraph form and filling it with all these words, remedy, evidence, need, circumstance, policy, so on and so forth. And it goes on and on and on. And then the only that final line Negroes was the cause. Mm hmm. Meaning to me, you can put every word, every white word under the sun here. You can come up with a million reasons. Mm -hmm. But Negroes was the cause. Blackness was the cause. That was the only reason for these people to be thrown overboard. Not because of all of these other reasons and words and grammars and logics that we can pretend are true or or that we want to trust. Um, she leaves us just with Negroes was the cause to to kick back up against that paragraph that she laid out. Mm. Yeah,
1: This one could argue that it starts as an interrogation, right? We could say, was the cause, et cetera, et cetera. It's just like the answer to the question, to the speculation is exactly. this was why. One of the things that struck me about it, because it's the end, this is the last poem in this segment of the of the cycle is um, that it feels like a culmination of a lot of the words that she's used before pulled together. So it's almost as if it's like the beginning of the book in a, in a way that like sort of there are these atoms floating in the universe or bodies floating in the sea and then they come together. Or on a continent, you know, bodies all over the continent. And then they come together on this ship. And this is the new beginning of the story. All of these different elements come together, and now we're at a new beginning. And that made me think about something that she says later in the book about um, New World Africans as a distinction from African Americans. And I was just so interested by the haunted, as, as, as Amber Rosa said a lot, uh, used that phrase, uh, that term a lot, the haunted and haunting way of thinking of a new world. Like, just because it's new doesn't mean it's better. It's like anti-Darwinian or whatever, but this is the new world for them. And this boat, in a way, is a new world. It's it's this this idea of creating new forms out of the variety of material, whether and it doesn't mean because it's it's just because it's newly constructed again doesn't mean that it's good, but that we're in Uncharted waters again. And, and I just think that her concentrating the text at the end of this first part of the cycle is saying, we're beginning again. And mm. she does that throughout the book. Mm.
0: That's great. Thank you. Uh, we could go on, the four of us, for a long time talking about this amazing work. So let's go around and each of us say one thing that you came here ready to say but didn't get a chance the way the conversation went.
1: Well, I'll say one thing that struck me about the, the care that she took with this material. You feel her heart, isn't it? Uh, but also how important the theme of travel is as a concept, as an existential concept. What does it mean to travel, mm. you know, involuntarily? you know what does it mean to stop traveling involuntarily what does it mean to be dropped off involuntarily right. but all of these n- ideas about travel how she did her research traveling to different continents um literally and in her in her mind uh just the idea of movement and travel that we consider especially in the age of the internet like a privilege and wonderful right but she questions that
2: existentially also
0: yeah Alexandria Johnson, final thought?
2: I think the final thought that I have is how to see the end as the beginning is what I'm really taking and what I got from these readings, um, from these poems. I think it's um, evident in many of the works, as Tracy was saying, and I also feel that I think that is where we are in society is how to make these ends the beginning. How do we create from this point? How do we create from what we may have perceived as loss or lack or not enoughness? And what is there to be created for all of us or for whatever it is that we're wanting? And I think that this work is a really wonderful um, inspiration for what we want to visualize and manifest. Mm
0: Thank you. Amber Rose, final thought?
3: My final thought is around voice uh, mm-hmm. and the importance of reading this work out loud. Whenever I've seen Norbessi Bessie give a reading, she's always invited other folks up towards the end, invited other folks up on stage with her to read with her. And I think she very much thinks about this as as much as it is doing incredible work on the page, as something that also is to exist out off the page and in not just one voice, but in a community of voices, mm-hmm. there's something that's yeah. powerful that happens when a group of people, mm. particularly a group of women... Read this work together. So, if there are folks who have not read it and and who get their hands on it, I would encourage you to bring it into your voice and see how that changes your experience of loss and migration and movement.
0: Thank you. My my fond thought kind of follows from things that Alexandra has been saying about the space leading to movement or suggesting movement in the sense of dance. I keep thinking of Kamal Brathwaite did some thinking about investigating in the uh, concept of limbo, the origin of limbo, hmm. which Nathaniel Mackey takes up specifically acknowledging Brathwaite in a pretty well-known poem called On Antiphon Island, where limbo is the thing that both is the, in more recent times, the kind of mainstreamized, recreational, dance, fun, Caribbean, pseudo-Caribbean thing that you might do on a cruise ship or something. But, of course, historical memory, as Brathwaite and others explored, is the learning in as playful a way as possible to negotiate the small space below deck. Mm. And so limbo has become a dead metaphor for the liminal, the in-between space, You know, not hell, not heaven. It's just Mm -hmm. this awful, it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. And these two poets are thinking about that Afro-Caribbean experience of limbo. And here, although limbo is not specifically referred to, the whole thing seems to be making do with space and making the body of the poem navigate and negotiate the limits limits of space Mm -hmm. in memoriam of people who were below deck. Mm -hmm. So... We like to end poem talk with a minute or two of gathering paradise, which is a chance for several of us or all of us, if you're quick, to spread wide our narrow Dickinsonian hands. Speak for yourself, Al. Uh, And gather (laughs) a little something really poetically good, something happening in the poetry or poetics world or the arts world that you would recommend. And Amber Rose, you seem like you have some paradise that you want to share. Do you?
3: I do. It's not an event. It's just a book that's on my mind that yeah. everyone should read. So it's called At the Full and Change of the Moon by Dionne Brand. And I think this book might have come out in... Like 1999. That might be a lie. But it is not a recent book, but I was just gifted yesterday a first edition copy of the book, hardcover. Oh, that's nice. It was very nice. And so I want to revisit it. But it's a really absolutely incredible and deeply poetic novel that everyone should read. It.
0: Thank you. Alexandria, Gather Some Paradise. What do you want to recommend?
2: I have been on a very large Octavia Butler journey (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i'm currently reading wild seed and this is after the parables so i am suggesting anything octavia butler anything to inspire your imagination in creating new things
0: speaking of new things octavia butler yeah thank you for that recommendation tracy morris
2: uh, in my hands
1: is a wonderful anthology called Word, uh, the Gathering of thoughts. this is This is published by um, Gathering of the Tribes. It's an anthology of collaborations between poets and visual artists. and it's it's a really wonderful mixed bag. It's put together and organized, co-edited by the Man, the Myth, the Legend Steve Cannon. Uh, who's is just a remarkable fixture of many social scenes and has been for a long time. Uh, so it's it came out this year and it's really fantastic pairings of, of visual art and uh, and and poetry. It's a lovely, a slim l- little volume. It's it's very weighty, really dense, beautiful piece.
0: Well, my gathering paradise um, has to do with Tracy Morris, who's uh, <laughs> p- actually paradisal. Uh, that would be enough of just Tracy Morris's paradise. So Could we can we stop?
1: I'm gonna get embarrassed.
0: Yeah, um, best American experimental writing. The aforementioned new anthology called Backs. I don't love Backs as a, but best American experimental Faux writing. French backs. <laughs> um, and it's really good. And it's just out. And I just want to just quote two things from it. The uh, guest editors. So you and Charles Bernstein were the guest editors this time. Yeah. And the um, preface is really great, and it's very timely. It has a kind of 2016, oh my God, feel to it. Mm. Uh, so one thing that you say about the avant-garde and telling marginal stories, you know how they do work together, despite the reputation sometimes of the avant-garde as being insular. Avant-garde often evokes a hermetically sealed tradition hobbled by its own triumphalism. We need avant-garde literary history to revolutionize overly narrow lineages and to acknowledge that the revolution of the word was fomented by writers who operated both inside and outside the cultural, ethnic, religious, or racial mainstreams. Which is to say, along with a host of literary scholars, artists, and anthologists from the past few decades, avant-garde history has not always acknowledged its innovators. At the same time, many of those hostile to what they call avant-garde poetry gerrymander the term to suit their foregone biases against it. Rather than saying avant-garde, we say on guard. Wake up. Poetry is about to begin. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, and I can't help but just pick something out from the book. Uh, and this is Tanya Foster, who's a poet that I admire. And it's a, it's a poem called In Tongues. And I just want to read the last stanza of that. These yawns into which we enter as into a harbor, come, go, don't, says the vocal oceans, which usher each of us so unlike any ship steered or steering into, a habit of place and placing a body, which choruses of limbs and wanting of limp Linger in each syllable Syllabic foot Tapping It's Chronic codes And codes is C slash Odes Codes Mm -hmm. Tanya Foster In tongues In backs Thank you for producing that Well that's all the Supposing the law of loss We have time for On Poem Talk today Poem Talk at the Writers House Is a collaboration Of the Center for Programs In Contemporary Writing And the Kelly Writers House At the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests, Alexandria Johnson, Tracy Morris, and Amber Rose Johnson, and to Poem Talk's directors and engineers today, Zach Cardner and Annie Fang. Thank you, Annie. Wave to the crowd. And to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, Firuza Kashani-Sabet, Machyar Antezari, and Leonard Schwartz will join me to talk about two poems, by the Persian language poet Fatima Shams. This is Al Filreis, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk. We're out. Yay! That was good. Yay! That was good. It oh, was. Did it great? did it great. Ladies, <laughs> did it did great. It did
1: great. That <laughs> was good.
0: This is Al Philry's Poem Talks producer and host. Zach and I and the rest of the Poem Talk team here at the Kelly Writers House hope you enjoyed this new episode. We wanted to add a special word of thanks here at the end to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, whose generous grant supporting Poem Talk, among other outreach projects, has helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much to the lights, and thanks to our regular and intermittent listeners one and all. We'll see you again in a month with another new episode of Poem Talk.